Hi, everybody. I want to begin with a quick little exercise, if you will. Have you ever watched a TED Talk? Oh, they're really addictive. They have experts, masters in their field, give a short presentation before an audience. Some of them have provocative titles like, Why Sitting Down Destroys You. But most of them are about how to do this or how to do that. How to avoid death by PowerPoint. How to talk and how to listen. What it takes to focus in a world of distraction. Now imagine the topic wasn't so ordinary. Imagine a TED Talk titled, oh, I don't know, how to buy a major English football club and keep the criminal buyer's identity a secret? Well, if you were lining up experts for that TED Talk, you could do worse than Christopher Samuelson. He's a money manager with a deep history of secretive deals around football. In our last episode, our undercover reporters told him they represent a wealthy Chinese businessman with a criminal record who wants to buy a club to launder his money. Now, a criminal buyer like this is explicitly against the rules of the English Football League, but Samuelson is undeterred. He leans forward in his chair and offers his expertise, TED Talk style, to get around the rules. He doesn't know it yet, but he's about to share his secrets with the world. This is Al Jazeera Investigates. I'm Kevin Hurton. This is part two of The Men Who Sell Football. If you're trying to get around the rules, the first step, he says, is to put your money in a trust. As it happens, he has a trust company in mind. It's called Finsbury, and he says he started it and still owns over a third of it. Finsbury was a trust company I started in 1983. It's the biggest trust company in Gibraltar. Gibraltar is an overseas British territory, an offshore financial hub located at the southern tip of Spain. I still own 35% through one of my trusts. What we normally do with a Gibraltar company is we form it with just a hundred pound capital, just a minute, the minimum, and they issue two shares or three shares or how many shares. Okay, so what's a trust? It's very simple. It just means giving your money to a trusted third party. It's often used to protect money if someone ever comes looking for it, like a bankruptcy judge or an angry government. In this case, the key feature of the trust is that it keeps the source of the money a secret. Yes, nobody can ever get behind who the shareholders are in the public domain. No media can penetrate because it's held in what we call nominee names. Now, this is a huge red flag. Nominee names, while legal, are really controversial because a nominee is just a front person, a name on paper, while the real control lies with someone else. So Finsbury uses some of our nominee shareholder companies, and they issue a declaration of trust in favor of who the real shareholder is. That's an internal document. You have copies of it. You have the original, of course, and there's a copy in Gibraltar and Finsbury that nobody else knows. And we're just going to say, who are the shareholders? We have some Chinese investors. That's all, I'm, that's all we'll say. This system that Samuelson just laid out to hide the origin of funds and the true owner of a club, it's not just theoretical. He claims to have done it before. I did it for um, Reading. I bought Reading Football Club, but I bought it for a Russian family called Zingarovich, 
We bought it for £25 million. He says he used his Gibraltar-based trust to deceive the Football League in 2012 when he bought Reading, then a club in the second tier of English football, for Anton Zingarovic, even though the money had come from Anton's father, Boris. When I bought Reading Football Club uh, for Anton Zingarovic, it was really his father's money, all of it, Boris. Boris Zingarovic is a Russian tycoon who owned a pulp and paper company. It's the largest in Russia and one of the largest in the world. But here's where it gets interesting. Samuelson admits that he didn't clear Boris through the Football League's ownership test. But I didn't clear Boris, I cleared Anton. How did I do that? Because Anton didn't have any money. So I got his father to gift the money to him. And so the Football League never checked whether Boris had obtained the money legally. Okay, Tim, done. That's it, they didn't argue about it at all. I'm one of the leading specialists in this kind of work. So in this episode, we want to take a closer look at Samuelson, this self-described specialist. We know he's had a hand in some well-publicized deals with major English clubs. But he's also a bit of a mystery man, someone who seems to know everyone, but no one, at least in the public's eye, seems to know much about him. Samuelson's been described to me as the ultimate man in the shadows. But Adrian Gatton does know a lot about him. He's an investigative journalist and my colleague in the I unit. Samuelson's somebody that, that I've been investigating on and off for the last 20 years. I think uh, he's a really, really intriguing character. And he's a bit of a maestro in terms of how to structure and, and move and conceal assets. Adrian, you were working on another project when you heard about our undercover with Samuelson. Do you remember your reaction? So I was just coming back from uh, Miami and I was sitting in the office and anyway, I brought up this name, Christopher Samuelson. And there were these sort of slightly cryptic looks around the table. And then someone said, look, I think you, you better come next door and have a look at something. So I went next door and then, yeah, and then my colleagues played me some tapes. And I was like, all right, that's, uh, that's Christopher Samuelson. <laughs> so uh, it was a bit of a sort of wow moment. So Samuelson is one of the biggest money managers in the world, but nobody's ever heard of him. Yeah, he's just one of the most controversial people in the world of offshore. Guy's like a sort of secret master of the universe, the kind of guy that you've, no one's ever heard of, but has had a lot of influence behind the scenes, you know, especially in making the oligarchs. Over the years, Adrian has seen Samuelson's name pop up time and again. He knows he's extremely well-connected, especially with Russian oligarchs. And Samuelson's dealings have grabbed police attention before. Al Jazeera's I-Unit has obtained an internal police document written by Dutch financial crime investigators. The report says Samuelson was at the center of a global money laundering operation, and the Dutch had a request for the Swiss judicial authorities. Samuelson had an office in Switzerland. The Dutch wanted the Swiss to raid Samuelson's office and also interview him on their behalf about certain matters. And in this document, the Dutch say that they suspect Samuelson of being the de facto leader of an international money laundering organization. It was a major investigation and it ran for several years. The investigation focused on a company headquartered in the Isle of Man, an offshore crown dependency. So yeah, so there's two companies. One is Valmet and that then morphs into a company called MTM, which is Mutual Trust Management. So the report mostly focuses on Samuelson's company's relationship with the Russian oligarchs, the guys that became billionaires, several of whom ended up in the UK and dead. 
MTM's clients included Russian oligarch Boris Berezhavsky and the Georgian Arkady Badri Patarkatashvili. Patarkatashvili was a billionaire who fell out with Putin and ended up in exile in Britain in the 2000s. Same with Berezhavsky. And, like Adrian was saying, both died in the UK and mysteriously. Far away from home, Badri Patarkatashvili died at 11 p.m. local time. The so far unexplained death of the exiled Russian oligarch Boris Berezovsky. The Dutch document says it was Samuelson who advised Berezovsky to invest in the gas giant Sibneft, now Gazpromneft. Berezovsky was later involved in a big lawsuit with none other than Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich. He was one of the most colorful and controversial of the Russian oligarchs, famous here for taking on Roman Abramovich in a court battle that decimated his fortune. Now, the ownership details are disputed, but the salient point is Dutch investigators say Samuelson played a role in the deal that was worth billions. It seems like a lot of what Samuelson does is submerged. So, Adrian, why is that? I guess it has to do with the types of people he's doing business with. When we dug up this Dutch document, it showed that one of Samuelson's clients had been this notorious crime family in London. They're known actually in London as the A-Team, the Adams family. And if you want a comparison, they're a little bit like uh, the Gambino family in, in New York. And it's three brothers, Patrick, Terry and Tommy. And they are three of the most notorious criminals in London. And they started off in bank robbery, and they got into drug trafficking on a massive scale. They've been linked to many, many murders. These are the kinds of people Samuelson has been accused of working with. But despite numerous investigations, he's not been convicted of any wrongdoing. He has denied all allegations and calls them farcical. So Samuelson is doing deals, he's moving money, he's working for billionaires, maybe even gangsters. Adrian, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Actually, he's from a very well-to-do family in Kent, which is in the south of England. It's, they call it the Garden of England because it's full of orchards. He's born in the 1940s. His father was a decorated officer in the British Army. There were society people, debutante balls, polo matches. His family frequently appeared in the Tatler magazine. Tatler's like a vanity fair in the 1940s. So he studies at a university in Grenoble, which is near Lyon in France. And from there he goes on to Munich, where he studies at this advanced linguistics institute. From there he goes on to New York and he works at a Wall Street brokerage, which is run by a guy called Donald Stralem, who actually has a, an interesting history. In fact, he seems to have been a conduit for CIA financing of the arts during the Cold War in the 50s. In the 1970s, Samuelson completely drops off the map. There's no public record of where he was. Then he reappears in the 1980s, uh, working for a company called Valmet, which is uh, one of the big offshore service providers. And that means he's perfectly positioned during the fall of the Soviet Union. And the rise of the oligarch class. They, Valmet, they're into Russia, the Soviet Union, two years before the collapse of communism. In the 1990s, Samuelson signs up all these extremely wealthy clients who suddenly have all the money in the world and absolutely no idea what to do with it. I met Roman Abramovich in Moscow. In this undercover recording, Samuelson is talking about his relationship 
with the owner of Chelsea Football Club. Roman became a clown. One day he was here and I, and I said to him, there's a, going to be political change in Russia. You should protect yourself. You need to get an image. And you love football, so why not buy a football club? We know that Samuelson worked with other oligarchs like Boris Berezovsky and the Georgian Badri Patrakadzhvili and helped them to move billions out of Russia to places like Switzerland, the Isle of Man, Gibraltar, and other offshore tax havens. Christopher Samuelson and his colleagues at Valmet actually helped to create the oligarchs because they're the ones that show them, and these young Russian businessmen, what is a bank account? How do you get credit? They sort of school the guys who will become oligarchs. They don't even know what a bank account is at that stage. You know, they've all grown up under communism. There's no private property. I mean, incredibly, Samuelson, he doesn't just have one job title, and that's, I think, what makes him interesting. A lot of these guys that run these trust companies, they're, they're nothing but glorified clerks. They fill in forms, they stamp documents. Samuelson's slightly different. He wears so many different hats. Fiduciary, trust manager, money manager... And he himself is a kind of a deal-maker and an entrepreneur. Back at the table with Samuelson, our undercover reporters are still working out the terms of a potential deal to buy a football club. They tell Samuelson that our fictional, criminal businessman, Mr. X, wants to own 60% of the club, with two other investors owning 20% each. Samuelson's mind starts to go to work to find a way to prevent the Football League from finding out about Mr. X's convictions. The other two shareholders of the 20% each, could we use them as a front for him short term and then we change it? I have to say who the shareholders are. Um, and what if they were to hold the shares in trust for him, Samuelson says if the two other investors have clean records, they could appear to own the club. But in reality, Mr. X's trust will have total control. If that doesn't work, Samuelson says he has a backup plan. He says if worse comes to worst, he'll create an investment fund from Mr. X's money. If the worst came to the worst, I would create an investment fund which would be owned by investor. I've done this before, too. Okay, it's an elaborate plan, and it breaks down like this. Samuelson sets up 20 companies where each investor on paper owns 5% of the total investment. Each director of these 20 companies will be one of Samuelson's nominee directors. But these directors aren't real. They're just holding Mr. X's money in trust, and their names don't need to be disclosed to the Football League under its ownership rules. No investor holds more than 5%. It's, a, it's, it's another trick. So there's no requirement to disclose who the investor is. Samuelson then sets up another company for Mr. X, which is the source of the funds. The other 20 companies appear to be independent, but in fact are only holding money from Mr. X's company in trust. So I simply create um, 21 companies, each one held by a trust. Boom. It's one structure, in effect, but they don't know it. This work requires a lot of creative thinking, problem-solving about how to get money, how to take money, and how to move it. And so you are seeing the master at work. 
Ben Cowduck of Transparency International, has some thoughts on this arrangement. This will be of great interest to the police and also the English football authorities as well. The English football authorities should take this investigation very seriously. They are up against fraudulent due diligence reports and a network of enablers seeking to pull the wool over their eyes. In 2016, Samuelson was at work closing a deal to sell one of England's oldest football clubs, Aston Villa. Chinese businessman Tony Shear, who completed a 110 million US dollar takeover of the club this week. The most important thing for the club is to be promoted back to the top six uh, club in the premiership. That was Tony Shaw when he took over. At the time, Villa was struggling to keep pace with the other top clubs. Most fans were cautiously optimistic about their new owner. Now, the move has raised some eyebrows in England, but Shao wants fans to know he plans to bring back good times to Villa Park. So lead us to glory. Thank you for watching the Villa View tonight. Thank you for coming on. Jack Nason, Villa fan. I think, as most Villa fans would agree, there is the air of excitement. But at the same time, there's quite an element of unknown, and I think there's a lot of scepticism. We will push till we get there. That skepticism from the Aston Villa fan would turn out to be well warranted. But at the start, money was flowing and spirits were high. For his part, Samuelson made a small fortune on the deal. The I unit has obtained an invoice that Samuelson sent to Shaw for his services. The total, over two and a half million dollars. And that's only one of the invoices. Add to that money already paid as part of his 3% commission, making a total fee of nearly $4 million. Plus, he even negotiated to make himself the club's deputy chairman. However, the good times didn't last long. Tony Shah was very charming when I first met him, but it went to his head. And I'm not sure how much was fact with him either. I'm not quite sure how much substance there is. Within weeks of purchasing the club, Shaw and Samuelson had a falling out. Samuelson was removed from the board and demoted to advisor. A few years later, money for Aston Villa really started to dry up. And it wasn't long before cracks began to appear under the Chinese businessman. Unbeknown to most Villa fans, Shaw was facing financial difficulty back in his homeland. Shaw was sued by creditors in China after he defaulted on loans following his takeover at Aston Villa. It turns out that Shaw had a lot of skeletons in his closet. In 2009, he had been charged with bid rigging and bribery, but the charges were later dropped due to lack of evidence. Tony Shaw claimed to own this, that, and everything else. I said, I don't want to hear about it. Remember, it had been Samuelson's job to convince the Football League that Shaw had enough money to buy the club. This is what he says he told Shah. I want one asset where you made enough money to, to get you approved, and you came with one which was 450 million sterling equivalent. Okay, he may not have been his uh, billing, but that's so, but he, he claimed it was his. So we put that on the form, just that. Despite persuading the Football League that Shah had sufficient legally obtained funds to buy Aston Villa, Samuelson never believed it himself. Here's the question. How much of that was his own money is a question mark. 
how much of it was somebody else. That I don't know. He said it was him. No, no, no. He was a front. Yeah. And I was sure he was a front. It's a remarkable thing to admit. Here's football finance specialist Kieran McGuire, followed by Ben Cowduck of Transparency International. It was well known that Aston Villa under Tony were losing large sums of money. Aston Villa fans will be absolutely staggered to hear that Samuelson is accusing of Tony being a front for somebody else. Here we have a revelation that Samuelson and Tony Shah have concocted this ownership structure which hides who the real owner is of Aston Villa Football Club. And it implies that we potentially don't know where the money came from to buy Aston Villa, which is really problematic when you have any unexplained wealth entering uh, the English Football League or the UK in general. The league will have to take a long look at this because Samuelson appears to be admitting that Tony Shaw was a front for a real-life version of Mr. X. Maybe that's why he's so confident he can get our deal done. Regardless, less than two years later, the situation at Villa went from bad to worse. By 2018, the club was on the brink of financial ruin and the brain trust was fracturing. The backroom at Villa fell apart. The club's CEO, Keith Wynas, was suspended following a fallout with Xia, while the director of football, Steve Rand, would quit. Club CEO Keith Wynas claimed he was forced to resign and sued Shah and Aston Villa. The I-Unit has obtained a statement Wynas prepared for the Employment Tribunal expressing his concerns about Shah's finances. He said, quote, My concern was that for a supposed billionaire with a string of companies, Mr. Shah appeared not to have a grasp on basic financial modeling. Here's Wynas speaking about Shah on a YouTube show called Jude's Journey. He was always very mysterious and... Um, we never really understood, you know, who he was in the end and uh, where his resources were. So he was, you know, I don't always believe he had the, uh, the best interests of the club at heart. Things turned out all right in the end for Villa. Shah eventually sold the club to a pair of billionaires and the team is currently thriving in the Premier League. Things turned out not so great for Tony Shah. He's currently being detained by the Chinese authorities pending a police investigation. Shah's family denies any criminality on his part. Ironically, while the sale was going through, the English Football League seemed more worried about the guy who was arranging the deal than Shah himself. The I-Unit has obtained a statement Samuelson sent to the EFL after attending a meeting to discuss his suitability to be an Aston Villa director. In the statement, Samuelson writes that Nick Craig the EFL's head of legal affairs, had called him, quote, a master of concealment. So, Adrian, what was Samuelson's response to all this? Samuelson says that Craig had asked him about the investigations by the Dutch Financial Crime Police, but he replied that it was all, quote, politically driven by the Kremlin and that his company's offices had been raided by the Dutch, but at Moscow's request. You've got to remember how close Samuelson was to the oligarchs. These are the oligarchs that became the enemies of Russia's President Putin. And Samuelson said, as he always does, that he was never charged with any crime. Our undercover reporters asked Samuelson about his dealings with the Football League, and he revealed something else about his tactics, something he says he learned from working in Russia in the 1990s, when the country was called the Wild East. He fights dirty. When we were 
dealing with Aston Villa, for example, we were monitoring what the Football League was saying behind the scene. They didn't know this, of course. Samuelson also admits to spying on the club's former CEO, Keith Wynas. In the case of Wynas, when we suspended him, he wasn't allowed to talk to the media. Of course, we had an ability to get the telephone records to see who he was talking to so we could identify what numbers he was calling. He was talking to the media. And that takes us to part three, the dirty trickster. Samuelson introduces us to his colleague, a former cop who pulls no punches. If he's got a competitor that he's really aggressive with, we go after him. We go after him. With whatever ammunition you've got, let's go after him. Could you find out the competitor, bank account, so that it's yours? Yeah. Plus, how Samuelson's idea to get Mr. X a new passport ended up with investigations being launched by the European Union and the Cyprus government. That's next time on Al Jazeera Investigates. Al Jazeera contacted all involved in this investigation. Samuelson's lawyers say he was never told that Mr. X had criminal convictions. Had he known, he would have ended discussions immediately. Finsbury's lawyers tell us that they comply with all regulatory and legislative provisions and conduct strict due diligence procedures to determine the true identity of the ultimate beneficial owners and that the firm could never be used in the manner that Samuelson suggests to hide the beneficial owners of wealth. They also say Samuelson is not a shareholder, owner, director, or employee of the firm and isn't authorized to represent it. Roman Abramovich's lawyers say he never had a personal relationship with Samuelson and never received advice about purchasing a football club. This episode was produced by me, Kevin Hurton, with help from David Harrison and Jason Gwynn. Craig Pennington is our audio editor. Clean Cuts does our final sound mix. Joe DeFrias is the show's executive producer. And Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism. We'll see you next time.